Well, welcome everybody. It's good to uh, good to see you this morning. It still is morning. A few more minutes. Um, today we cross into chapter seventeen and eighteen, but we still have the seventh bowl to deal with. Uh, last time, um, I think I did that last time, didn't I? Last time I drew the timeline. We reviewed the whole big picture, didn't we? Do that last time? Okay, I thought so. So I'm not going to do that again, uh, obviously, uh, because we are, uh, one, I don't have as much space. And what I wrote up there for now, just sort of ignore if if you can. That never works because you write something down, people start staring at it, write it down, and then you forget uh, what I'm saying. But um, perhaps for the last time, I'll, I'll just review again this sheet, this little timeline, et cetera, that you have, uh, as I've said at least a dozen times, I believe the proper way to get our arms around the book of Revelation is to understand that the main narrative is the narrative of judgment. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We're almost at the end of the final sequence that is of bowls. We'll do the seventh bowl in chapter 16 in a minute. What John is doing as well under the inspiration of the Spirit what I have is these little box um, that, that go above or below the timeline are these parentheses or like bunny trails or whatever you want to call it to further explain and help us to understand what is really going on in the narrative of the judgment. Who's the witness for God? 144,000, the two witnesses, chapter 11. Um, who are the key players during this period? That's what chapters 12, 13, 14 about. Seven key players. We talked about that. And so now where we are is um, we're finishing uh, the bowl judgments, which we will do here in just a minute, the seventh final bowl. And then, in a, in a sense, and although you could say it fits in with the seventh bowl, but in a sense, the other and final major bunny trail or finer major, major parenthesis is a, a short discourse on Babylon. And so we have to define that, we have to define what does he mean by Babylon, and then look at the, the two different aspects or parts of this Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is the, uh, the narrative of the book of Revelation setting us up for the return of Christ. I mean, that's really, that's where this narrative is headed. Uh, if you, you, know, you put on that timeline an arrow, it's headed somewhere. It's headed for the return of Jesus. And so that we're almost there. The other thing I want to say by way of introduction, this is a review because we've talked about this before, but I want to say it probably for the last time. We know this is the 70th week of Daniel. Um, there's very little question about that. And this is that material that's in Daniel chapter 9, which we studied quite a few months ago. And now the book, and what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24, what Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians 2 and so on. Now the book of Revelation is just filling in all the details. And that individual who is the key player in this period from the, uh, the side of evil, so to speak, is the beast or the little horn or whatever the many names. 1 John 2 calls him the Antichrist. He consolidates his power in the first three and a half years. In a lot of different ways, politically, militarily, financially, religiously. 
And that apex is when, in, right in the middle, and Jesus talks about that, Paul talks about that, right in the middle is when he sets up in Jerusalem the worship of himself. And the false prophet, which we studied in chapter 13, aids in that, helps in that. And the last three and a half years of this block of time, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the label Jesus gives to this period, is when his control begins to unravel. It, his, um, his world stature, his military and political genius begins to uh, unravel. And today what we're going to look at is the, the, the religious dimension of it and then the, the commercial financial dimension of it. It's just all starting to come apart. <clears throat> and that's what culminates in all of the world powers gathering in the Valley of Jezreel for the final battle. And the text will tell us they're not only fighting Antichrist and fighting the beast, they're actually fighting the Lamb of God, which is where all that's going to end. So uh, that's just an overview. It's just, and, and you've got to keep the big picture. You've got to keep the trees. As we look at the individual stuff, you've got to keep that big picture in mind, or you really, you just lose it. You get lost in it. And you say, I just don't know where to sit. It, it all fits together. You just have to keep coming back to the big picture. All right. Can I assume by your silence that means understanding? Yes, yeah. again, the first three and a half, everybody's kind of worshiping him. And the last three and a half, they, they get disheartened with him or something, and then they start turning against him. Kind of especially, especially the the major political and military powers that were a part of this alliance, this mm-hmm. confederate alliance that yeah. he puts together, this coalition he puts together. Yes, and, and uh, this what's happening in chapter 17, which we'll get to here in a couple of minutes, is really, really important because when you first read it, it sounds like it's, it's part of his deceitful, conniving power, but it also could be understood as an act of desperation on his part, which, again, we'll try to unravel a little bit of that. I but, may have misunderstood you, too. Yes. Uh, did you say that, that they're fighting... When I say they, you know, I'm talking about when they're coming in, fighting the Antichrist, they're, they're also fighting the Lamb of God. Did you say that? Ultimately, yeah, ultimately, Woody, that's ultimately where this is going to end up. Because um, when the Lord Jesus returns and he marches north to the Valley of Jezreel, that then they, all of them, will fight him or uh, attempt to fight him, which okay. is right. a losing battle to fight I, God. But... But we're not quite there yet. I just threw that out as an overview. But uh, that's ultimately where this is going to where this is going to okay. end up. Absolutely. Is that because they don't know who he is? Or is Who's the he? The Lamb of God. Uh, I'm not sure. I would say that. Uh, it, 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 we'll read a little bit about that, and Jesus even talked about that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 16 and following, or excuse me, 23 and following. That when he returned. Everybody will see it, and everybody will understand who he is. So I don't think there's any lack of clarity of whom they're fighting. But then the alternative is that they don't like who he is. Well, yes. Yeah, I think it's it's the final... Or again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's that final, it's that final act, if you will, of human rebellion against God. It's just absolutely ludicrous. And when you, I mean, just think of it humanly. Of course, you and I have embraced the Lord Jesus. We understand who He is, and so on. But the really absurd choice 
to try to to try to destroy God and fight the Lamb of God. I mean, that's just you know that's why I said. I mean, from my perspective, I think everybody should have given up a long time ago. You know, just thrown in the towel. We're not going to win. But unfortunately, that's not. Uh, Jeremiah writes that the, the heart of man, heart of human beings, is desperately wicked beyond all evil. And uh, I don't know about you, but I see an awful lot of evidence of that right now. I, I you know, I, I've been re- reading some things recently that talk about, well, what's liberty? What's freedom? Is liberty a desire for freedom, or is it a desire for autonomy? Well, in the postmodern 21st century, it, it is largely defining freedom as autonomy. It really is. Freedom is autonomy. It's license. Do whatever you want. And there's no human being who's reasonable that would say that is reasonable freedom. Nobody wants to say that. Our founders of this nation never defined freedom in that way. Never. And even people who don't give a hoot about Christianity at all would disagree with that proposition, that freedom means personal autonomy. That is the path to social, probably political, and certainly commercial anarchy. You can't build a civilization on absolute autonomy. You can't do it. There's just no way. It will, it will never hold together. And that's why that's the danger of what's happening in Western civilization. Now, I'm, this has nothing to do with revelation. I'm going to make this sentence and I'm done. But we are, we are, we are following a path as, as we additionally, each generation, and this millennial generation is really embracing that. That is the path to self-destruction. I mean, it really is. That's just, I'm not only saying that as a Christian. I'm just saying that as an historian who studied the 5,000 years of recorded history. You will find no civilization that has survived that kind of an approach. Athens tried it, and then they're destroyed. The Roman, Repu- well, the Roman Republic, in terms of the aristocratic, not, not everybody, it was a small group. I mean, it just, it just doesn't work. It will not work. And that was why our founders, when they put together this nation, the brilliance of what they were doing is they had learned from history, they had learned the lessons, and many, not all, many of them were also Christians. And so putting together a framework of a plan of government that was nothing short of brilliant. I mean, it really is. It's, it's, it's one of the most, well, anyway, we're done. Bowl 7, verse 17. Now, remember, this is the final of six. This is the seventh of, of, of uh, seven uh, judgments. Six have preceded. We've dealt with those. If you're following in your notes, we're on page 34. <clears throat> and if you remember, verse 16 of chapter uh, 16 reminds us that this is all headed to Armageddon because it mentions that. Now, verse 17, which is the final bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Now, that's not hard to figure out what's going, but the, the key is, it is a, is a neuter pronoun. And I know you know that. I'm just reminding you of English grammar. But so what's the it referring to? It is done. Virtually every expositor I know understands the it to mean the wrath of God is complete. The judgments of God are now at an end. Seven seals, 
seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's done. So the timeline narrative that we're pretty much using as our guideline is just about over. And so what the reason that's important is because in this, this declaration is the term Babylon, which I, I will get to in just a minute. So as this is announced, what happens? There were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came from the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Okay, what you have then in verse 18, accompanying this declaration of the end of God's wrath, are these remarkable, both cosmic and geological disturbances that are unmistakable, and they are of such... Uh, uh, significant that the, the declaration is there's never been anything like this. So, I mean, all of us have read about and maybe seen, and perhaps some of you even have witnessed uh, or even been a part of an earthquake. That, that's, from what I understand, it's the most scary thing it can possibly be in. But this is going to be beyond anything that's ever, as well as the kinds of things cosmically, flashes of, of lightning, peals of thunder, etc. Because it's announcing this, it's accompanying this, don't miss it. And that great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, obviously as a result of the earthquake. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, is the great city in part A of verse 19 Babylon or Jerusalem? It's, there's a lot of discussion about that. It could be the great city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits on a fault line. I've been there many, many, many times. And the evidence of earthquakes in Jerusalem is very obvious and very clear. But it sits on a major fault line that starts in Central Asia and goes all the way down to Africa. And it's a very unstable fault line. So it could be. But the focus is especially on Babylon in verse 19. Babylon the Great was remembered for God. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. And every island fled away and mountains were not found. Huge hailstones. Now, this is, I mean, this is almost unimaginable. 100 pounds each. Do we understand that? Literally or figuratively? Wow. I mean, I, I've, seen hail, I've seen hail about this big, about the size of a softball. I don't know, that's what I want. Three or four pounds, maybe? So just, you know, so I, almost unimaginable. Came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Repentance? No continue to blaspheme God. All right, so the seventh the seventh uh, bowl judgment is more of a proclamation accompanied by supernatural signs and wonders with a declaration about this Babylon. That this Babylon was remembered before God. So that's the transition to chapter 17 and chapter 18. Okay? So the focus now on the remaining timeline here and the remaining events right before Christ comes back is in addition to this political and apparently military alliance or coalition that the Antichrist has put together, as it is beginning to unravel, we saw some of that in the sixth bowl. We're going to see more of it in, in the next section. There are religious things occurring, and there are commercial financial things occurring. 
we are at the end of history. We are at the end of the Antichrist's brilliance, and we're seeing everything unravel. This will be, men, this, and, and, and Lord willing, as I understand prophecy, if, if you put your faith in Christ, you're not going to be there. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you're going to go through this. And then hopefully during that, you'll put your faith in Christ. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there for what we're doing. Because now what Antichrist does in chapter 17 is he turns on this religious support he has gotten. I want to talk about that. But before we get into that, uh, if you have your notes, I, I want to draw your attention to that because I'm just going to read something that I wrote there. We must understand this term Babylon. So I just put, define this. All right, you have two choices. This is either literal Babylon that would have to be rebuilt. Because if you, and right now I wouldn't recommend you go to Iraq, but if you go to Iraq and you say, I would like to see the remains of the ancient city of Babylon, they take you there. Now, again, right now, I don't believe they're leading tours in Iraq. Maybe they are. Maybe some fanatical idiot is leading tours in Iraq <laughs> amidst all the bullets and stuff flying around as the Shiites and Sunnis and everybody continue to fight. But more than likely, uh, you can't go there. But if you could go there, what you would see are the ruins of the great city of Babylon, but a few little rebuilding projects that Saddam Hussein had started. Because Saddam Hussein had committed to rebuilding Babylon. That was his vision. He was going to rebuild the great Babylon, which was the capital city of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, because Saddam saw himself as a new Nebuchadnezzar. The coins of Iraq, when he was ruling, his image was on one side, and the other side was Nebuchadnezzar. His elite guard dressed like the guards of King Nebuchadnezzar of the 7th century B.C., 6th and 7th century B.C., I mean, that's, that's the kind of megalomaniac that Saddam was. So it's either literal Babylon rebuilt or it's figurative Babylon. So if you look at your notes, throughout history, I'm at the bottom of page 34, that paragraph before we look at chapter 17. But throughout history, Babylon has been the center of all types of satanic deception. It is better, therefore, to see it here as the archetypical head or arch archetypal head or metaphorical head, however you want to use that, of all entrenched worldly resistance to God. It is the symbol of satanic deception and power. The apostle Peter uses it that way in his second epistle. It is in conjunction now with Antichrist. It has a religious dimension, which is what chapter 17 is all about, and it has more of a commercial, financial, to some extent political dimension, which is what chapter 18 is all about. <coughs> So, uh, what I'm arguing for, as you do more study, you may disagree with me, but what I'm arguing for here, and what I think is the right way to understand this, Babylon is understood here figuratively. It is the figurative, metaphorical center, which it has been throughout history, of satanic deception, of evil, of occult power, of, of devious, duplicitous, challenging everything that God stands for. And so I think that the Bible uses it. There is a literal Babylon. It's in the Old Testament. It's what Nebuchadnezzar, that was the center of his empire, and so on. 
but it was destroyed in 539 BC. And it was rebuilt not to the grandeur of Nebuchadnezzar, but then after after Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great dies there in 323 BC. After that, it begins to decline, and it goes into ruin uh, for the most part. It was a part of the Persian Empire, but never a major center like Ekbata, Susa, and other parts in, in Persia were. So today it's ruins, except for those few things uh, Saddam built. So there are a few biblical scholars who believe that Babylon's going to rebuild, be rebuilt. Uh, it, maybe it is. I certainly wouldn't die for that. But I think it's basically to understand this is figurative. I may have lost you with some of that, but I, I hope I didn't. Do you, do you have any questions about how we're thinking about that or, or defining it? What would be today's version of Babylon? As a the symbol of a okay, you know, Dave, I'm not sure I could single out one central. There are ramifications of it everywhere. It seems to me. Um, I would I would look at some of the things. And it's a broad label, yet it fits. Is the new age, new age spirituality, is very very in sync with that. Very deceptive, very duplicitous. Uh, it sounds good. It really does. It's, uh, I mean, Oprah Winfrey represents that. She really does. Dr. Phil represents that. I mean, they, that's, that's where they're coming from. Do they believe in the spiritual world? Yes. Do they believe in angels? Yes. Do they believe in the substitutionary, once-for-all atonement of Jesus Christ for all human sin? No. They believe you're not as bad as the Bible tells you. You're really... I'm okay, you're okay, all you have to do is turn inward and unleash all those good forces within you to be the fulfilled human being that the spirits want you to have. That's very deceptive, but it fits with what Rob mentioned earlier with the desire for autonomy and controlling your own destiny. Just turn inward and you'll find that that's a great message for a postmodern America. We love it. Uh, institutionally, you could find light, lots of examples of it. But I don't see, and I might be wrong, but I don't see anything in the world in 2016, well, there's the center of the, quote, Babylon, end quote, of the 21st century. It would seem as if what is going to happen, as we, we've already talked about this, so now just keep in mind everything we've discussed, as Antichrist is setting up worship of himself, which we already talked about, and you know that's kind of the center, the midpoint of the, of the, the 70th week. All of the other organized world religions will support that. Now, let me make a comment that may or may not be of help to you. Outside of biblical Christianity, and to an extent Islam, all the other major world religions are very syncretistic. You know what I mean by syncretistic? Pull a lot of things together. Hinduism has been referred to as a sponge. It just soaks up every belief. I mean, it's not, diffi it's not difficult for a Hindu to embrace some of the stuff about Christianity. As long as you don't make it exclusive about Jesus, but because they... They're just constantly morphing and adapting. Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, 
doesn't have any real difficulty embracing a lot of stuff as long as you keep turning inward. But the, the path that Buddha said, his eightfold, eightfold path to truth is you turn inward. Suffering's your problem. Learn how to deal with your lust, master it, control it, you're on the way to nirvana. Well, see, that's what new near that's what near Eastern mysticism and the new age, they just bought all that. It's very easy, very eclectic, very syncretistic. So what this this world system of religious worship is all coalescing around this Antichrist. And she, she Babylon is depicted here as this, this woman sitting on the beast. So let's read verse seven, uh, verses 1 um, uh, through oh, about 6 to 7 in chapter 17. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me and said, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now this will be interpreted, all of this will be interpreted in verse 8 and following with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with wine of her immorality. And he carried men away in the spirit into the wilderness. So this supernaturally takes him into the future, and he sees this. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. Now, the seven heads and ten horns do not describe the woman they describe the beast. Does that sound familiar? Okay, a lot of you are shaking your head yes, it should. Because this has been the description consistently from the book of Daniel on of the little horn, of the Antichrist, of the lawless man, of the man of sin, of the beast. So what I, and this, this is, I'm not a draw drawer, artist, I can't even draw a recognizable stick man, so I didn't even put it that way. So, and I hope it's all right with N.P. Dodge, that I not only use the board, but also use one of these sheets of paper. I'll be willing to put five dollars down if they want me to pay for this sheet of paper. But chapter seven, this is the picture we're supposed to have. Here's the beast. Seven horns, uh, seven kings, seven horns. You got that description that's consistently from Daniel 7 on. This is what this final ruler of world history is going to look like. Now, what it's telling us is on top of the beast, riding the beast, is this woman. And you'll see in a moment, her name is Babylon. So, all right, let, let's think about that for a minute. It's, it's, it's a bizarre image, and if you try to draw something figurative like this on a piece of paper, it's just absolutely the most ridiculous looking thing you've ever seen. Seven heads, ten horns, and there's a woman riding on it. I mean, but it's all this symbolism that starts in Daniel and is now, again, you see, you recognize, okay, got it, that's the beast, that's the Antichrist, that's, I got it, that's who it is. And it describes this woman who's riding on top of the beast. Clothed in purple, verse 4, scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead is a name, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of all the abominations of the world. Okay, now this is, I, just, I wrote out a bunch of stuff there in your notes, but this is this bizarre, just unimaginable picture. But get the bizarre stuff. Okay, it, the beast, seven heads, ten horns, 
That's Antichrist. He's been consistently described that way. And riding on his back is this woman, and all of it, she's beautiful. And she has all of the things that are associated with beauty and wealth and position, gold, precious stones, pearls. But despite her beauty, what is she? A cup full of abominations and unclean things of her immorality. She's deceptive. She looks beautiful. She looks gorgeous and wealthy. Pay attention to somebody like that. But as it always is the case, what she's doing is she's leading humanity down the path of abomination, of error, of harlotry. And harlotry, it, it isn't just sexual immorality. It's the spiritual harlotry of rebellion against God. And the world is drunk with it. And this title, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the mother of the abominations, that's why I believe as I wrote there that title, that is consistent with how she's figuratively presented throughout the Bible. Babylon is always figuratively depicted as the epitome of religious, spiritual adultery and evil, leading humanity down the path of rebellion. But because she's riding on the beast, you'll see this because it's going to be interpreted in a minute, but what is she doing? She's buttressing his power, supporting him, giving credibility and giving, giving spiritual support to who he is. So the entrance for it to draw, Antichrist, achieves his success through and because of this false system of religion. This false system. This Babylon that's religious. In addition, verse 6, this mysterious woman I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. She's the origin. She's the source. She's the foster, cultivator of the slaughter of those who have been faithful to Christ during the tribulation. Because they're the only ones that don't follow what she's teaching. They're the only ones. Now, let's just take the pronoun her away. They just make it the point we're supposed to make. It's those who resist this syncretistic end-time world religion that's put together. Those who come to faith during the tribulation don't bow down to that, don't serve that. So whatever the exact dynamics are of this, whatever the specifics of this system are, how it's going to come together, what's going to be at the center of it, who's going to... False prophet is obviously going to be facilitating it because it tells us that in chapter 13. But what's about to happen is the Antichrist is going to turn on her. The Antichrist is going to turn on this system. Why? You already know the answer to that. You just don't know you know the answer to it. Why would he turn on this system? Because he, he wants to be worshipped. He doesn't want anything else competing with him. 
And so he's going to turn on this system. He's going to turn on this Babylon. So, so he's going to create a system of deception and then turn against that system so he can be worshipped? Is that what Because it is a threat to the singular worship of himself that he wants. Is in the system of deception that he created is, is worshipping him or not? Mark, it would seem as if it is a it is a syncretistic, you know, syncretistic, you're putting a lot of different things together, a syncretistic system that satisfies most of the people of the world. This is the world faith. This is the world religion. This is what we worship. And that facilitates and fosters and helps the Antichrist. They support him. She's riding on his back. That's the symbol of it. She's, riding, she's supporting him. Now, because she's riding on the back, you know, the power and authority and all that is, is still him, but she has been supporting. She is, she's giving the, the significance of she serves him, but it's becoming counterproductive to his end. What's his end? We've learned that again and again and again and again. What does he want? He wants to be worshipped as God. So a system that may say, well, there is a God and we worship that God and you know, and I mean, you know, today you have some people saying, well, the Jews and, and the Muslims and the Christians are all worshiping the same God. So let's just come together and just worship him. Well, who's the him? Well, we don't want to get into that. We just come together and worship him. And then I'm, I'm, I'm making this up, but let's just say, so then, you know, as you go on, this is working pretty well. We got a bunch of these leaders and you know, people. Huh? I know, but I'm trying to stay away from any of the controversy. So anyway, so you have that, and then you have, you know, because in order to do that, no longer does truth matter, no longer does doctrine theology matter, you're just focusing on unity. You just want to get together. And so then you have a bunch of Hindu leaders and saying, you know, this is really working well. Let's, is that all right if we join this too? But you don't, you don't have a singular God. No, but we worship a spirit. And we, Brahman, which is really, is really behind everything. We just know anything about him. So we still sort of believe in one. Oh, good. Okay, jump, join us. And then the Buddhists come along, particularly the threat of Veda Buddhists, and say, well, we kind of worship the deified Buddha, so we still have one. Well, then let's join. Okay, we can see. Least common denominator. You don't believe anything. There's no theology. No doctrinal confession where we're just all coming together. Okay, this is good. Presumably, it's going to be something like this. Where doctrine and theology don't matter. All that matters is you're coming together on the least common denominator. What's the least common denominator? We really want to feel good about ourselves. That's, we just want to feel good about ourselves. We feel good about humanity. And we can help humanity achieve this feeling good about ourselves. Well, there's no faith on earth that doesn't believe that that's probably a pretty good thing. Except general biblical Christianity says we are so rotten inside, we can't feel good of ourselves. It's called sin. And we need to embrace the only one who has saved us from sin, that's Jesus. That's too exclusive, you can't join the club. <laughs> so those people, verse 6 tells us, they will be martyred, they'll be killed, because they're not joining the group. So that's the best I can do. Those who have the Holy Spirit, having received Christ as their Savior, they have the discerning ability to not go along with this movement. 
right, Jim? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. also it would seem the strength to refuse mm -hmm. and accept death. Because um, you think of this pastor that was just released. Mm -hmm. Saeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, Saeed went against some pretty mm -hmm. harsh mm -hmm. <coughs> punishment, but he didn't right. defer right. to... He stood for what he believed, absolutely. Well, and it's just the, it, it, as the Spirit confirms this again and again and again, this is the truth. There is a real Jesus who really did die, who really did accomplish salvation. That's the key. It's not this watered-down gobbledygook that's a part of this worldwide system. That doesn't offer anything. It's just helping to serve this ruler. That's putting together this coalition. It's, it's, it's like, well, anyway, I, I was going to go down a bunny trail. I'm not going down that bunny trail. So, um, some of this, we do not, the Bible doesn't tell us enough of the detail. But it, it's not hard to understand what is going on here. All of the major world faiths, now, at the time when John writes this, you know, it's, the, it's the Mediterranean world under Rome and so on. They know about Asia, but they don't know a lot about Asia. So they're not going to quite see it the way you and I see it. We have a global village where we really understand all the worldviews <clears throat> and so on that are, are on planet Earth. But it's still, it's not hard to understand because Rome, Rome was like that. The Roman Empire at the time John is writing this in AD was like that. Rome comes into a province, conquers it, and says, if you want to keep worshiping your own gods, that's okay. Just, we're going to build a statue of Tiberius here and want you to build, bow down to him. And we, we, want, we, we want you to be able to confess that Caesar is Lord. Just do that. If you want to worship your own gods, fine. But just make sure you do that. And as long as you did that, Rome didn't care. That's why the Jews were such a problem. Because in the Roman province of Judea, they wouldn't do that. They said, no, we worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment. So we can't bow down. If you don't bow down, then we're going to kill you. Okay, we're not bowing down. Okay, off goes your head. Well, no, they would, they didn't, off goes your head, they, they would crucify them. They crucified non-citizens of Rome. They decapitated them. What's that? It makes ISIS a little bit in the middle. Well, yeah, well, in ISIS. Well, I mean, it's just all these things. I mean, in Egypt, if you want to bow down to ISIS, fine, you know. So, I mean, it's all this. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just do what Rome wants you to do. Okay. So, can you, I mean, I don't have any trouble understanding how this kind of a thing can come together. I really don't. I mean, we join this big one. Why? Well, because it facilitates world peace and it's good for everything. And this guy down in Jerusalem is really putting together this call. Okay, so we can still worship. Yeah, but you got about. Okay, that's good. We're willing to do it. But now he's coming along and he's going to say, out with all this syncretism. Out with all this fuzzy, least common denominator stuff. Worship me or pay with your life. That's what's happening. No more this, this gobbledygook, fuzzy, feel-good, syncretistic stuff. It is time for you to bow down to me. So now, who is energizing the beast? We learned that in chapter 13. Satan. Satan. 
So Satan is getting what he has wanted since he rebelled against God. He is being worshipped. That's what he wants. And he's getting it. And it's why, well, I'm getting ahead of my stuff. But I'm t this, is what is, this is really what is important for you to understand what is going on here. The troika of evil, Satan, the great dragon, Romans 12, uh, 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 Revelation 12, the beast and the false prophet, the false trinity, they are getting what they want. The world is bowing down to them. But as you will see, the cost of this is devastating. And so the, 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 this, this, everything that the Antichrist has promised, he just can't, he can't do it anymore. And things are starting to unravel. And that's what's going to bring back Jesus. Because as Jesus says in Matthew, in Matthew 24, if I didn't come back, the world would self-destruct. The world would absolutely annihilate itself. But that's where we're headed the story. Okay, now, are you still with me? or that's Well, John. the beast, the Antichrist, rejects all this and wants to be worshipped. That's right. Himself. That's exactly right. But you say sin, Satan wants this. The red dragon, but the Satan, dragon. remember, Satan but has incarnated. It's the incarnated, so mm -hmm. that's that's their own little um, triumphant or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's exactly what's going on. So Satan is. That's why it's so amazing. Satan is getting what he's always wanted. God's image bearers bowing down to him, so to speak. All right. Verse Does he have a forward-looking... Who's he? Satan. A forward-looking vision of... The, does, does he know that he's going to be done in? Sure. He can read. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he can read. So, yeah. So, you'd say more than headstrong here. Well, I mean, it just shows the... I mean, I mean it's hard to get put human words yeah. into this yeah. because... The audacity, the the arrogance. I mean, but none of those seem to fit because it's way beyond audacity and arrogance. It's an it's absolutely inconceivable arrogance. If you know that your destiny is the lake of fire, which is what this tells us, I mean, I'd say, okay, I surrender, I give up. But they don't do that. So, I mean, he knows his destiny. So that's, I've said this before. My own view, I can't go to a verse and prove it, but it seems reasonable. This really helps us to see how monstrously evil Satan really is. Because he knows he's lost, cross was his defeat, and he knows his destiny. It's in the Bible, he can read. So what he's doing now is I can't, I can't, I'm not going to be ever able to finally once for all defeat God. But I am going to get at God by taking as many image bearers to the lake of fire as I possibly can. God loves the world, all people. God sent his son. But God, you heard me say, God lays the gift on the table and says you've got to pick up the gift or that's not applied to you. If you don't pick up the gift, you're, re you're rejecting me, you're rejecting my grace. I'm going to keep laying the table on, gift on the table for it. But anyway, 
Though Satan's whole objective is, I'm going to take as many of the image bearers that God has created to the lake of fire with me. That's how evil he is. That's horrible. And I've said that to unbelievers, not, you know, not a lot, but I've said that to unbelievers. You, you have doubts about Satan, you have doubts about evil, and you think evil is just a, something that's part of the evolutionary scheme of things, that it's just there's a social explanation for evil, socio-biology, socio-evolution, but you know, that doesn't, that's not adequate. That's not adequate. There's something deeper than that, and that the depth of that is in the person who's leading the rebellion against God. And God's method of defeating him is to have the image bearers whom he loves choose him, not Satan. But you got to make the choice. All right. Yeah. So Satan, when he's trying to fight all of this, does he think that he can change? Or he knows that this thing is... Like when he was fighting the cross, when he was trying to deceive Jesus, when yeah. he was doing all of this, when he's doing all of this craziness, he thinks that he can change destiny? I think, again, I mean, I, yeah, to me, able to speak authoritatively for Satan or yeah, something, I don't know, but mm -hmm. it would seem reasonable to conclude that before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan thought he could win. I think that's the substance of the temptations of Jesus. I really do. But once, once the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is over, then he's done because the atonement for sin has been paid. But now, okay, now what's his plan? I can't, I can't defeat the Son. He, he is at the right hand of the Father. He's enthroned. The Holy Spirit has come. So now Satan shifts strategy. I can't defeat the Son. The cross defeated me. But I can still hurt God. I can't win, but I can still hurt God by getting as many image bearers as I possibly can to worship me, so to speak, follow me, so to speak, to the lake of fire. It's amazing because, you know, it, by, by the thousands, millions, humans are following it. Whether they think of it that way or not, they're following it. They're following him right to the lake of fire. Despite God's, and we talked about this before, despite God's continual and relentless presentation of his grace to humanity. And there's that defiance. No, and as I said before, C.S. Lewis said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. Would it be safe to say that for all of these men around the table, and their family and friends uh, that haven't received Christ as their Savior, that Satan really hates them. Absolutely. And wants to see them in hell. Absolutely. And we may be the the only bridge. You may be the only gospel people here and see. That's right. All right. Now, man, I hope you realize we've only done six verses, and it's 
20 up. So can I keep going here? I mean, it's all right. I don't mind your questions. And I shouldn't say it that way. As if, you know, I have these goals. My goal was to do all of Chapter 17 today. I, I must have been drinking too much coffee last night because I'm not going to get there. You know, I just wanted to say, oh, that's right, Tom. You know, when you said about, you know, down here we said about Satan at the cross, you know, not thinking that he was going to win, and he didn't. I think he's kind of, I think he's going to keep him winning the second time. He didn't do it the first time. I mean, he's so diabolical. Or, yeah. I, I don't think he thinks that he's going to hurt God. I think he thinks he could probably win the second time. And you can read could that be. scripture could and say, be. oh, yeah, yeah, you know, this pride, I mean, you know, I just can't yeah. imagine this person like that. Mm. But that's what I... It is. I mean, you're right. I mean, his pride, his arrogance, yeah. etc. is so, it's beyond anything we could imagine. Mm -hmm. There's a current presidential candidate that's getting close in that arrogance and pride. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't mean that. Let's look at verse 7. And the angel said to me, because at the end of verse 6, and when I saw her, the woman riding top of the beach, I wondered greatly. The word there, wondered, is, it's, that's a, it's a good translation, but it's really, it's, he is astonishingly, amazingly confounded by this. Do you know what I mean by that confounded? I mean, it's just it's overwhelming to him. And the angel said, why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which had seven heads and ten horns. So, you know, he's astonished, he's amazed, he's confounded by this, and the angel says, I'm going to help you understand what you just saw. I want to explain this to you. And so verse 8 through the end of the chapter is really the interpretation, the explanation of what John just saw. And it really, it's easy, it's helpful. And so we read in verse 8, now this, this is going to I hope this is going to sound really familiar, this is going to sound like a summary of chapter 13. And if it sounds like a summary of chapter 13, guess what? It's a summary of chapter 13. <laughs> <laughs> and the beast you saw was and is not, and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. That is exactly how he's described in chapter 13. It's a quote. It's a direct quote. So who is this? This is the Antichrist. On whom is this woman riding? The Antichrist. And that phrase, who was, is not, and is about to come out of it, that's the reference to when he receives that fatal wound, and seemingly is resurrected. It's a false resurrection. It's the false Christ. That's who he is. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast, that is he who was and is not and will come. This again is exactly out of the book of Revelation chapter 13. It's a direct quote from it. So it's just reminding us, don't be confounded by this. This is the Antichrist. She's riding on him. Now here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman sits, and the, there are seven kings. Now the seven heads are not the woman's heads, they're the seven heads of the beast. Back to verse 3, which takes you back to verse th chapter 13, which takes you back to Daniel 7. So it's just this consistency, so you're not confounded. Okay, who it? They are seven kings, they're seven political rulers. Five have fallen... One is another yet to come, and when he comes, he will remain for a little while. And the beast, again, this gets a little hard, who was, who is not, and is himself, the eighth is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. 
All right, well, what is that saying? It's saying that he is triumphing over all of these. These seven comprise a coalition he builds. He turns on all of them. And the ten horns, verse 12, are ten kings who have not received a kingdom, but they received the authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Okay, it seems reasonable to conclude that these ten kings, these ten horns, these ten kings, this is a coalition. Because it says they receive authority. From whom? From the beast. Who are they? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us at this point. The Bible doesn't tell us who they are. It's just he puts this coalition, I would assume, most assume, this is a worldwide coalition that he puts together. I mean, he is a world dictator, so it just makes sense. All he's doing is he consolidates his power with these seven kings. That's the source of his, base of his power. Plus, he builds this coalition. And it tells us, verse 13, it tells us the purpose of this. Why does he build this worldwide coalition? They have one purpose. What is it? To give power and authority to the beast. Does that surprise you? No. That's what we've been reading about. He wants world power, world recognition, and world worship. So he's achieved the world power. He's achieved the world recognition. But he's not achieved the world worship yet. That's why he turns on her. Because she is that final barrier. And so... And, and, and exactly all that this means is, and, and what it's going to look like, the scriptures just don't tell us that. But I hope you're understanding why it's very reasonable for us to see what he's doing. He's wanted all along to world be, worship worldwide. She's standing in the way of that. <clears throat> now verse 14 it's, it's like a little parenthesis. Verse 14, it reminds us of the big picture. What they're really doing is they're waging war against the land. Do they all understand that? Maybe, maybe not. But the veil's lifted just for a little bit. This is a this is a cosmic battle. This is a cosmic struggle. That's why in many ways it's still it's still not wrong to conclude when people stand against the truth what they're really doing is making war against God and this is actually the this is actually the the words of the angel yes as she's de- as he is describing what's that's exactly mm-hmm. and what, and helping to interpret who's the beast who's this woman riding on the beast what's this all about that's right mm-hmm all right, um, let me do one more thing yet. Maybe, I, I can't believe it. We are maybe going to finish 17, but verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, these are the people's multitudes, nations, and tongues. So who is it? It's the people on earth. That's all, it's just, that's not how, okay, the waters, that's all of humanity. And verse 7, 16 and 17, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot. We'll make her desolate, naked. We'll eat her flesh. We'll burn her up with fire. What's that mean? 
Well, that's graphic, it's figurative language, but what's the beast going to do with the coalition that he's put together? They're going to turn on this religious syncretistic movement and destroy it. Why? Because it's a threat to the worship of the beast, which is what he wants, who is energized by, by Satan, which is what Satan wants. For God has put this in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. This is in line with what God's doing. So God, again, it's a reminder again. It's one of those little lifting the veil. It reminds us God is still in control of all this. Amen. That's all it's saying to it. It's just a reminder. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's why, described as the great city, that's why the great city of verse 18 of chapter 16, in my view, is Babylon, not Jerusalem. But the point is, the point is, is Babylon, at this, uh, the point of verse, of chapter 17, this false religious syncretistic system that comes together, if you will call it, this apostate system, supports Antichrist, helps to facilitate and foster his grab for worldwide power. Once he gets it, he turns on it. Because she, he doesn't want a worldwide syncretistic religion that kind of worships whatever you want. What does he want? He wants everybody to worship him. So he's got to destroy it. And that's what chapter 17 is all about. So religious Babylon that had supported the rise of the power of the Antichrist it now crumbles. The tomorrow what we'll do, or no, um, next Wednesday what we'll do is we'll look at chapter 18, which is the collapse of the financial commercial entity which he put together. And so, I mean, that's why we're almost at the return of Christ. So, anyway. I'm doing my best to explain this. Is, is this making some sense? To, I mean, this is really... This is, this is, so many people don't understand this, and so they just throw up their arms, I don't even want to try to understand, it's too hard. But Jim, it's really hard to understand when you just read it black and white, oh, yeah. and you don't have anybody explaining it, or, you know, expanding on it. Well, it's, it's just putting together all the things that we've learned before from Daniel, it's just keeping, keeping, putting it all together, this is what we've learned, okay, now we're just learning a little bit more. Oh, anyway, that's good. But I'll tell you, it's hard work for me. You guys are hard. No, I'm just kidding. You're not. You're very easy. Lord, we're thankful that we can understand your revelation to us. It is, uh, it's important to, to give the effort to do this. The whole counsel of God the scriptures speak of, and that includes one-fourth of the Bible, which is prophecy. We can't ignore it. We can't set it aside. It's important to try to come to terms with it. And this is hard, it is, but as we sort through it, we see again, the end is all going to be wrapped around that final opposition in the rebellion against you, organized by this Antichrist, false prophet, and as Satan empowers it. But they're not going to win. And it's starting to unravel. And uh, as we just read in that second to last verse, you're very much in control of all this. You're very much sovereignly overseeing all of this. Because the end is near. And the end from the scriptural viewpoint is the return of Jesus. The triumph of your kingdom, the establishment of your purposes in the final sense. And it's all going to be wrapped around the return of Jesus Christ. He's our Savior now. He's our Lord now. He's soon to come back as our reigning sovereign and Lord of the universe. 
and all will bow down to worship him. And we look forward to that. We long for that. And we say with the early church, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because that is the thing we're all looking forward to. Give us a good rest of this day. Help us to represent you to our friends, to our members of our family, to those with whom we work, because we are the salt and light. And we ask you to help us to do that to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week.